Uh, good morning, everybody. Some of you just saw last night. Some of you, it's been uh, a few weeks. Good to see you, Newman. Good, you're feeling. Glad that you're feeling better, and Sarah too. Um, this morning we are in the month of March, March sixth to be exact, right? And March is an interesting month in that it is leading up to the month of April. And what happens in April? We always know what happens in December. Christmas happens in December. What happens in April? Easter, right? The Christian church celebrates the death, the suffering, the death, the crucifixion, the three-day silence in the tomb, and the sudden resurrection of Jesus on the third day. And so, what the Christian tradition from a very long time ago did was they created this idea of 40 days of fasting before uh, the day of Easter, which is known as Lent. And what is Lent? Lent in the Christian church is the period of penitential preparation for Easter. Penitential meaning that we observe some sort of penitence, some sort of uh, abstaining from the things that are both physical or perhaps emotional that tend to distract us from worship of God. In Western churches, it begins on Ash Wednesday. Now, our church doesn't celebrate Ash Wednesday, and that's okay because we're in a different church tradition. But this is just for your knowledge. It happens six and a half weeks before Easter and provides a 40-day fast except for Sunday. So today is technically not a fast day. It is an imitation of Jesus Christ's fasting in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. So we understand that the reason the Christian church in the West many, many years ago decided that we're going to think about the 40 days leading up to Easter and set them apart as a time of fasting, abstaining from something in particular, whether that is uh, together as a community or just as an individual, right? So we understand that this is copying exactly what happened in the wilderness over 2,000 years ago when Jesus had just been baptized and he goes and separates himself in the desert, walks through the desert without food, or really drink, as what the gospel tells us. He is hungry, he is tired, and he is weak. And in those three moments is when the devil, whether the devil is physical or mental, begins to interact with Christ. So this morning, we will begin with two well-known stories, actually. So we read just one of Jesus, but we're going to read another one. And that one is very familiar, too. It is the story of our beginning as human beings in the book of Genesis. A very, very good book. In that beginning, we understand what it means to be human. Created as image bearers of God, but not fully God. It is the story of Adam and Eve and the origin of our sin, which was rooted in a temptation and a lie. A lie that told us that we do not have enough of what, but what might make us complete. And that is completely true, right? But is that exactly what we were intended for? 
This lie in the book of Genesis develops a desire for us to pursue power, right? Power over our flesh and over our spirit in order to defeat the very scary thing called death. Everything from the beginning of human creation, right? When humans began to think what they wanted to avoid was dying. And we see that in the Genesis narrative, and we'll see that in just a moment. But that is our beginning as human beings, our beginning as Christians, as followers of Christ, is tied to another story as well. It is the story of a young man who had just been baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin. The baptism submerging Jesus in the water and him emerging from the water was actually a very spectacular scene. Jesus was in the crowd, right? And then he steps forward. He is just a regular human being, and he steps forward at the call of John to be baptized. In that moment, when he rises out of the water, the sky opens up, and the voice of God declares, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And you can reference that in Matthew 3 if you have your Bibles. In the Gospel of Luke, we're in Matthew today, but in the Gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus is right about 30 years old when he is baptized. That's kind of interesting, because it is not until Jesus is of that age, 30, that we first encounter his title as the Son of God. Later on, in the Mount of Transfiguration, if you wanted to look in the Gospel of Mark, it's a very good story. God once again declares that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. However, let's remember this. Jesus never actually called himself that. Right? He never said, I am the Son of God, listen to me. Jesus never said that. And that's really interesting. So, what does that mean? When the religious and political leaders accused him, right, and crucified him, because he called himself the Son of God, which is known as blasphemy, it was a false accusation. It was never the words of Jesus. It was told about Jesus, but he never said that in his own words. So, why does he get to be called that? Keep that question in mind. In Genesis 1, we read that God created both man and woman in his image and in his likeness from the beginning of their life on earth. The imagery of being a child of God is in that very beginning of humanity's story according to our Bible. That means that we too are children of God. Yet, coming back to that question, why is it that we call Jesus the Son of God? And why is it that title that ultimately leads to his death? Because there is something distinctly different from Jesus' humanity. He radically redefined what it means to be human. And in doing so, he made it evident that we begin to see him not as human in the ways that we are. So while Jesus is explicitly recognizable as the Son of God, he chose to be fully human, to experience hunger, to be tempted, and to walk through hardship in the wilderness. And y'all, it is hot in that wilderness. So I think last summer we were hitting the 100 degree temperatures here, it was hot, right? And we started to have threats of fire because of how lush it is. In the uh, Palestinian-Israeli wilderness, 
temperatures rise up to 130 degrees. Now, think about that <laughs> next time you、uh, are thinking of traveling to the Middle East. At the beginning of chapter four, we read、uh, that Jesus' ministry doesn't begin with his victorious entry into Jerusalem or when he's sharing a meal with his disciples. That is the Jesus that we actually like to hear about a lot, right? The one that's hospitable and doing miraculous things and healing people. But that's not the Jesus. No. In Matthew 4, we encounter Jesus in one of his most vulnerable states that we like to avoid. Because let's be real, we never want to talk about our weaknesses, especially as it relates to our sinful desires and temptations. But Jesus begins his ministry with that confession. And that is a point of difference. In this story, unlike in so many others, there are no eyewitnesses. Did you catch that? It was Jesus alone in the wilderness. What does that mean? Well, that means in order for the writers of the gospel to have known about this situation, Jesus needed to tell his disciples, his followers, whoever was going to be the writer of the gospels, this is what happened to me when I was alone. Oh. That's kind of interesting, right? Because how often we like to portray ourselves as successful and pure and just good, righteous people on the outside, right? Especially if we're being called into doing some sort of justice or ministry or、uh, humanitarian type of work. And the interesting thing about the temptations that Jesus faces is that they centered on body, power, and faith. Each one was interwoven in a tone of a sarcasm and a lie coming from the devil. It manipulated the word of God, manipulated the power of God, and manipulated the honor that is credited to God. And you know what? There is just striking parallelism. To the temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. So, before we enter the Word of God once again, let's pray.、Uh, Father,、uh, we ask that as we look、uh, at the beginnings of our humanity,、uh, both through the story of Adam and Eve and through Jesus' ministry,、uh, that、um, we will be moved towards confession in a season of Lent.、Uh, Lord, we understand that our actions have consequences and carry,、um, are carried out throughout our lives. And we trust also, Lord, that it is in these consequences that you are glorified because your plan has always been to redeem the brokenness, the suffering, the hatred. With your unfailing love. And Lord, we enter and we are joyful because of that experience of love and freedom that we have in you. We thank you that you are here and that you are working in our lives and in our hearts. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, what I'll be doing is I'll be reading a Genesis passage. Making a side note, quick note, and then I'll read the Matthew passage that Howard read for us this morning. So Genesis 3 begins. Now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Is it really true that God said, You must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said, You must not eat from it, and you must not touch it, or else you will die. That's the key point here. Humans see that the result of buying into our temptations, into the lie that the serpent presents, leads to death. What does Jesus do? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's the first difference, right? He's not in the garden. He's led into the wilderness. After he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, that's kind of uh, familiar, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Live is the key word here, right? Christ doesn't say that we die if we don't eat the word of God. No, he says you will live if you eat that, the words that come from the mouth of God. So Christ faces temptations and he responds to Satan's sarcasms and lies saying that no, there is life and that is what I choose. Well, we read again on in Genesis. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will die, for God knows that when you eat... Oh, sure, surely you will not die. Sorry, sorry. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the devil took him to the holy city, we read in Matthew. Had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will lift you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Once again, it is written, You are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Adam and Eve don't respond to the serpent's second statement. You will not die. You will live. You'll become wise. And that catches them. They see with their eyes and they forget. But Jesus credits power where power is due. My question is, why doesn't he strike the devil? We know that Christ is powerful. He defeats the demons later on in the Gospels. Why doesn't he cast the demon out right now? Why doesn't he fight? Because I think Christ uses this as an example to show that in every moment of his life, that that what is loving, truthful, and good will always defeat even the darkest forces within us or around us. And Christ shows that to us in Matthew 4. Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord moving about the orchard at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. We've all been there when our parents were coming home and the house is not clean. We start to run around, pretend to hide the things that are out or you know that we haven't been on YouTube for too long. 
Um, so we've all been there, right? Caught in the act. We know what it feels like. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman replied, The serpent tricked me and I ate. Blame upon blame upon blame. Matthew 4. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you throw yourself to the ground and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan. For it is written, You are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and began ministering to his needs. Here, Matthew engages his readers in this thought. In Genesis 3, it took one temptation to confuse Adam and Eve. But our Lord Jesus Christ faced three and withstood. He didn't try to overcomplicate things. He just kept saying, I choose to live. I choose life and I choose God. While there is something familiar to us in Christ's humanity, once again, there is something that is distinctly different. And so I invite you for some points of reflection and maybe some questions that you can think about. Jesus is clearly tempted, as we are. What we gain from Matthew 4 is that temptations are not bad in themselves, but it is what we do with them that can help us turn to God or turn away from God, to hide or to stand firm. The question for you is, do you see the temptations that you have as ways to turn to God or as ways to rely on your own resources. Point two. The temptations of Jesus seem a little different uh, from the ways we are tempted. Or are there similarities? Remember, power, faith, body. Underneath the different temptations of Jesus, there is the invitation of Satan that he deny his identity as the Son of God. Are not our temptations an invitation to deny the kind of person we want to be and instead turn to unhealthy ways to satisfy ourselves? Point three. By resisting the temptations, Jesus chose to depend on his Father, on God, to satisfy his deepest hunger, to relate with others in an ordinary way and by not relying on reputation, power, and possessions. How do we satisfy our deepest hunger? Do we depend on prestige and power to make ourselves acceptable to others? Remember this. After the wilderness, he begins his ministry of teaching, which is a distinguished position in his time, of healing, so he becomes a doctor, a physician, Right, and of leading his followers, so the people that he has influence over. 
So while Christ may not have had a kingship or a crown over his head, it is after the wilderness that we see the true power of God in his life. Jesus commanded his followers to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and with all our mind. When we think about the story of Jesus tempted in the wilderness, to love the Lord means to love his word and to love to nourish our bodies with it. To lovingly attribute honor to God. Not because we're forced to do it, or that God is far away from us, and so we cry out and think, okay, I don't know if God is there, but I'll just say something for the sake of it, as a lucky charm. No. Jesus shows us that in order for us to love God, with our heart, our soul, and our mind means to not attribute power to ourselves because we understand that it's not enough. So, the challenge today for us, sitting on March 6th in the year 2022, 2,000 years later, humans have learned a lot. We put these stories side by side. In Genesis 3 and in Matthew 4, two beginnings. My question is, do we have the intellectual and emotional maturity to see that Adam and Eve were tempted and saw temptation as a pathway to death? And Jesus was likewise tempted and responded to the the threat of death with life. Unlike Adam and Eve who had plenty of fruit to enjoy in the Garden of Eden, Jesus was literally starving. Forty days. Yet, in this story, Jesus demonstrates that it is not in his strength that he can claim the title Son of God, but in his weakness. So how can we put together the promise of life alongside our physical and mental weaknesses if we claim an identity as Christians? I think this story shows to live, to stay alive, to choose life, is perhaps the most powerful testimony that we hold on to from day to day. And that is why Jesus came, that we might live and live abundantly. But in that abundance and in that fullness comes freedom, right, out of confessing, out of confessing those things that are tormenting us on the inside and on the outside. By confessing, we are free from the lies that we are not enough or that our identity is to be questioned. By confessing, we attribute our love to God, who is in all and through all. He does not turn away when we fall, but he walks toward us, as he did in Genesis 3. In freedom to love God, then we move to the second part of the commandment. We love one another. Because there is deep gladness and confidence that this is where we can be complete. Right? And Adam and Eve thought, oh, if only we were wiser, then we would be complete. No. If Adam and Eve continued to enjoy one another's company in the Garden of Eden, that would have been enough. But, as is our human condition, we think, oh, we need something else. There's, there's just not enough. 
And so we strive for things, right? But Jesus says, I had nothing. I came in with nothing. And even when I was given the title Son of God, I said, I'm going to step away. And I'm going to take a break. And I'm going to not have a good time. Because my fullness does not come from having, but from having not. Right? So, our identity as followers of Christ is rooted in that. How freeing that is, that we don't need to chase, but we can. Right? Not because it's going to make us more complete. We already are complete. The things that we want to pursue, whether it's education, careers, jobs, we do that because we can. Not because that is going to make us more complete. And tied to that. Our identity as free followers does not mean that we can be hateful, rude, or arrogant towards those who are different. Just because we are free doesn't mean that we can be mean to one another and go unchecked in our ways. That all of a sudden, because we are filled with the Spirit of God, we have the authority to judge and to condemn those sinners. Let's not become religious in our fervor and our freedom. But... Let's actually use the stories of Jesus in this season of Lent, in these 40 days, and put our stories next to it. And see how Jesus responds with love, understanding, and compassion. And see how we oftentimes think that that simply isn't enough. So as we walk through the 40 days, we're already three days in, maybe four days in to Lent, as a family... We have to think about our call to live out in the unity of the spirit toward peace. So doing the hard work of peace, as we've been talking about, means coming to peace within ourselves. means coming to understanding that what we have is enough. What we want to pursue is a choice that we make out of our freedom, not out of our limitation. And doing the hard work of peace means confronting the thoughts within our heads that put us down, and instead responding with words of love and truth. So as those who partake in this faith, that we follow a God who chose weakness in order to demonstrate his strength, let us be encouraged as we confess the words of a psalm together. Uh, I was part of a church in Boston uh, before our communion. Every month we read Psalm 51. And so I invite you now to read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is right at the third, maybe, marking of all of the Psalms. It happens when David is confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. And he comes to the Lord. Let's read it together. Okay, join me in reading. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we are so deeply glad that uh, there is both an end and a beginning to both our joys and our sufferings. And that uh, you are a God whom we get to uh, worship and enjoy forever. And Lord, we thank you that uh, when Christ came uh, down to earth in the most humble and meek way, that he did not uh, come and strive for power or for recognition, but both power and recognition were granted to him because he chose to live with less. And yet, Lord, we see that it is in Christ's example that there is fullness of life and life everlasting. And so we ask, Lord, wherever we are, whatever we are pursuing, that it not be out of a desire to prove ourselves or to become more complete, but to acknowledge that because we get to follow and to call ourselves your children, we are free to do and to live and to enjoy one another's company as it was from the beginning. Lord, whatever the lies uh, and temptations that we hear in this time, we ask that your power be enacted and your truth be spoken from our lips and your love be demonstrated to each of us in this season, first and foremost to one another as family. And later on to the world. May we be slow to judge, but quick to listen. May we be uh, quick to show love and compassion, 
and slow to be reserved and hateful. Check us, make our paths straight, Lord. You are good, and we see your goodness in one another's life. And what a powerful testimony it is to see that when we live, others live. And that was the plan from the beginning. Lord, as we walk through 40 days thinking about how your weakness demonstrated your strength in the long run, we trust that you are using this season to teach us something as a church, as a community, in a community. And we ask that we would be attentive to your voice. Uh, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, we thank you that we get to partake in the body as one body and to be united through that participation. I pray for all of those who are gathered here and for those who couldn't make it today. Uh, may we feel and see and proclaim how good you are to each of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.